from training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 83. This is going to be our last episode before a little bit of a holiday break, but we're going to go out with a bang because today's guest is a guy who's had a real profound impact on my career, had a chance to work alongside him with USA Baseball. Um, He's very skilled, not only in the world of player development, but also in terms of scouting, um, talent recognition, Um, just a really, really insightful guy that's, that's been in many different roles in the baseball world, so he's got a lot of wisdom to share in this show. This episode is brought to you by Athletic Greens. It's an all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients to support your body's nutritional needs across five critical areas. Energy, immunity, gut health, hormonal support, and healthy aging. I'm an avid user of Athletic Greens myself in spite of the fact that I tend to be a supplement minimalist. To me, this is a product that is much more like whole food nutritional insurance as opposed to a true supplement. The ingredients have been carefully selected at the highest quality, most natural source. You get essential vitamins and minerals, digestive enzymes, prebiotics, probiotics, and that's a zero compromise approach from the company. It's plant-based, sourced from whole foods at the highest quality, so you won't find harmful chemicals, artificial colors or flavors, preservatives or added sugar. Um, Really, it's perfect for folks who are gluten and dairy-free, paleo, keto, vegan-friendly, great for people who are intermittent fasting, all that fun stuff. Um, Personally, I love it for, for obviously, our athletes who don't get enough nutritional uh, benefits from fruits and vegetables because they don't eat enough. So it's a way to kind of plug in holes in diets. But also, I really like it for our college and professional athletes who may have complex travel schedules where quality food options aren't always at hand. Um, On a personal level, I'm a husband, father of three, and an entrepreneur. Um, we split our time between two states, and, and I'm also still an avid lifter. Um, so life is inherently crazy, and it can be stressful, and sleep deprivation is definitely something that we encounter. So I rely on Athletic Greens uh, for part of my immune support and believe firmly that it's, it's made a big difference in keeping me healthy in spite of how crazy our lifestyle is. Um, they've got a great offer in place. If you head to athleticgreens.com backslash Cressy, they'll get you 20 free travel packets with your purchase. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash slash Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, and you can claim your special offer. Today's guest played baseball at William Penn University and graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree in education with a concentration in kinesiology. He subsequently earned a master's in education in intercollegiate athletic leadership from the University of Washington. During that time, he interned in the front office with the Seattle Mariners. He began his college coaching career by serving as the pitching coach at Edmonds Community College from 2007 to 2009 and then joined the University of Arizona baseball staff in 2009 as the director of operations. He served in that position for seven months before being appointed to the pitching coach position. He helped the team win the 2012 College World Series while serving as the Wildcats pitching coach until 2014. Along the way, he was chosen as the 2012 National Pitching Coach of the Year. From 2014 to 2015, he was the director of the 18 and under national team for USA Baseball. The program would go on to win the 2014-18 and under Pan American Championship gold medal and the 2015-18U Baseball World Championship gold medal. From 2015 to 2017, he served as coordinator of player development for the San Diego Padres. He was involved in all aspects of baseball operations, scouting, and player development. In September of 2018, he became the assistant head coach and pitching coach at Eastern Kentucky University. Please welcome to the show, Sean Cole. Welcome to the show, Sean. Yeah, thank thank you for having me. Um, um, I'm excited to to dive into some pitching, and um, and just hear hear how things have been going for you. I'm excited for this because so we first met. I, w- I want to say it was in Toronto in the middle of a, a massive blizzard. It was I want to say mm-hmm. 2010. So I yep. remember distinctly. I committed to do this seminar, and Derek Johnson was on the the docket, and DJ got he uh that was right when he signed on with the cubs as their minor league pitching coordinator and they needed somebody to fill in and he was like you got to get sean cole he's doing amazing things at arizona this guy's a stud and i remember watching your presentation i'm like 
he wasn't wrong. And we had breakfast. Uh, I may have a lunch. I can't remember what it was. It was, it was in that little cafe alongside the, the, the seminar uh, location. Yep. And you blew my mind. And so I, I think it's a it's an exciting time because we've gotten a chance to work together in person over the years. And you provided me with a great opportunity with Team USA. And, and I'm excited to share you with a, a larger audience because I think there's there's we've had so many conversations where there are there are things that people can benefit from, you know, that, you know, maybe they haven't heard. So we're going to run a rock and roll with this. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And, and, and Derek Johnson's always been good to me. I I've always appreciated him. And, and, um, and that, that convention in Toronto is, I, in my opinion, besides the ABCA, that the next best coaches convention, Dirk does a great job. And, and I, I made it a point to stick around. I think you were speaking last if I remember right, it was Thursday night or Friday, but yeah. I made a, a point to stick around and, and you and I have been, been friends ever since, ever since. It's crazy. Right All right. So let's, let's talk about the path to coaching. Um, and we're mm. going to talk about recruiting. We're going to talk about scouting, player development, all that stuff. How did you initially make the transition from playing to, to coaching and what drew you to it? And what were like maybe the initial mm. struggles going from playing to coaching? Yeah. Um, well, love of the game's always been there. Uh, and, and really, uh, my, my bachelor's degrees in kinesiology, I was always intrigued by strength and conditioning and biomechanics and, um, how to improve body movement and things of that nature. And I thought I was going to go that direction. And then, um, when I finished in college, my junior college coach reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to, to be a pitching coach for a, a summer team, um, up in the Northwest where I'm from. And I took the job and I needed a job. I didn't have a job fresh out of college. And so I said yes and, and really enjoyed it and liked it. And, and really, um, it kind of catapulted me into my next opportunity, which has kind of been uh, what my career path has looked like a little bit is my next opportunity. I, I did an internship in, in the front office with the Seattle Mariners and baseball operations while I was going to grad school. So Early on, I had a, a taste of pro ball and um, high school coaching, and then that kind of led me into uh, a junior college coaching at Edmonds Community College. I'm, and I'm curious. So, like, one of the things that I've noticed about I mean, you, you won at every level. I know that sounds crazy to say, but you won in junior college, right? You won at mm -hmm. the University of Arizona. You won with mm -hmm. Team USA. It was this, this track record. I'm curious, were there commonalities of those programs? You know, I mean, mm. I think early on in our coach career, sometimes we, we, we have success. We don't necessarily know why until we look at it in 10 years in hindsight. Um, like, what was it that you thought worked well early on in your coaching career, both in terms of your own development as a coach, but also in terms of the success that your teams had? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the common themes all the way through and even, you know, as recent at, at Eastern Kentucky with, with the things we were able to do in the last couple of years, um, Number one, just leadership from the head coach through the, the, the other assistants and, and clear communication with the players. Um, and then the other common theme that I've just seen a lot, and I'll, I'll give you an example from my time in junior college. We, I remember the head coach got a phone call from the athletic director that, you know, the, the players were in and there's, we had this huge indoor facility and they were in there late at night and he thought they were in there partying and, and had some girls and, and all this stuff. So the head coach drove over one night around 1130 and they had wedged wood in the door. They were in there hitting. And the coach said, look, I'm not going to I'm not going to stop these guys from doing that. I'm going to give them keys to the facility. So the common theme with the, the teams that I've been a part of is the players have wanted it more than the coaches. Um, the players have put in extra effort in the weight room. They have put in extra effort on the field. Um, beyond what we're allowed under the NCAA rules, they're they're doing their own thing. So that's been a huge component is just taking ownership of of their careers and, and getting better. And I've 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 benefited from that pretty much everywhere I've been. One of the things I've actually been uh, talking about, I had a conversation with a couple of our interns about it the other day, is you know this this concept of you know why some players become good coaches and why other you know, former players fail miserably at it. Like, what, what do you think, uh, you know, and, and granted, we're, we're talking about, you know, you, you pitched at William Penn and then coached mm -hmm. at Arizona. There was a there was an upgrade in the caliber of baseball mm -hmm. versus, you know, you hear about a retired major leaguer who becomes a, a manager or something like that. It doesn't go well. Or, you know, someone who pitched and then became a pitching mm -hmm. coach at that level and they just couldn't teach it. What do you think the, the, the big things that make people successful in those transitions are? You know, what are the things that actually make some people fail? Um... I, I I can really only speak answer that question based off of my experience. Um, 
I, I have a passion for, for really wanting to pour into guys and get them better. Um, and I'm also, you can call it OCD or whatever, but attention to detail is a big thing. And I, I just don't, I don't let that slip with the players and you've been around me before. I'm very direct with them about what the expectations are and, and what we're going to do. And, and I stand alongside them, uh, the whole way through to accomplish that. Um, for me, and this will segue into a, a, a you know, another topic we're going to talk about a little bit later, but I was a soft throwing lefty. So I had to be able to spin it and throw a change up effectively. And, and I've, I've been blessed to work with guys that, that have velo and they can throw hard. Mm -hmm. And I've basically taught them how to pitch like I did, but they have the extra velo uh, to really back that up. So uh, I, I can't really speak for others and why they fail or why they have success. But I, for, for myself, I just think it's just consistency with, with what I'm doing every day and having a plan with what I'm doing. You, you indirectly described exactly what I, I talked about with our community. I, so I have a theory. I think that what makes a lot of athletes successful is selfishness, right? You have to pour into yourself relentlessly in the way mm-hmm. that you work. You have to eat on time. You have to sleep on time. You have to mm-hmm. be meticulous in your preparation. You, you're inherently selfish. Being yes. a coach is all about serving others. It's literally putting, I mean, I, I know how my knees feel at the end of a 10 hour day when I've been trying to help others, <laughs> you know, like that's just the nature of it. You skip meals because the facility is busy or, you know, you stand on your head uh, to do whatever it takes to be, mm-hmm. you know, to be in a position to help others. And I, I think that's why we see, you know, you see like retired catchers, right? They're, they're used to serving a pitching staff. You know, it's everything that is offensive about them, you know, gets put on the back burner because it's about managing a, you know, pitching staff, stuff like that. So I, I think there's something to be said. Some people, they, they struggle with that transition of having to serve mm-hmm. others and not be self-centered all the time. So I, I, I would also add to that, that, that even though you're serving others, I still think there's a commonality that there's, there's a deep passion within you to be successful, though, at yeah. whatever it is you're doing. And that that pours into the other people around you. Would intri- you agree with that? Or? You have to be intrinsically, you know, motivated. It's, it, yeah. it's not, it's not, I mean, I mean, I know because I've, I've been around you enough that that's something that, you know, you're, I don't want to say it's on to the next, but it's very much like you're always looking to accomplish something new. You know, mm-hmm. like I said, you did it at junior college, you did it at Arizona, you, you know, you did it at team USA. So it's, it's intriguing. And I know that was one of the things that drew you to pro ball was, mm-hmm. was doing at that level. So you know, speaking on the kind of the Arizona side of things, you were you had a reputation for being one of the best recruiters in the country while at Arizona. And that's, a, a you know, also something that probably served as a foundation for the appointment with Team USA, where, you know, you had to look at a large volume of athletes to, to pare down and eventually get to a 20 man, um, you know, national team roster. So I think, you know, there's there's an amazing feather in your cap there, but it's also probably something that maybe forces us to overlook, you know, some of the challenges that come along with recruiting. I mean, you're effectively selling a product to a, you know, 15, 16, 17-year-old kid in their family. So let, let's talk about the recruiting process. You know, what are the big mistakes that you see high school players um, and their parents make in their outreach to colleges when they want to go to an Arizona or Eastern Kentucky or wherever it may be? Mm-hmm. Um. I, I think one thing that gets overlooked is is not really understanding the roster needs and the roster limitations. Um, just just assuming that they're talented enough to come play at a place and then wondering why maybe you're not recruiting them. Um, and, and it's probably because some rosters already have two or three catchers and we don't need five or six of those guys running around or um, and then, you know, the other thing I would add in there is maybe just poor self-evaluation, like, not everybody can go to LSU. Not everybody can go to Texas. Um, it's just those are elite, elite places, and they're looking for certain things. So just having that understanding and, and, and really looking at, okay, well, where do, where do I fit in best? Um, and then the other thing for me personally, I'll speak, I'm not a big email guy. I like phone call. I like, I like interaction. I like getting to know people. I like talking to them. So if you're going to bombard me with emails, that's going to be uh, a, a difficult path um, for, for getting to me at least. I know others love email communication and things of that nature. But for me personally, um, pick up the phone and call me or text me and set up a time to, to get on the phone and talk. 
I like that. What, what about top like recruiting pet peeves? What do you see that makes you roll your eyes, whether it's just watching Twitter or even when you're out actually recruiting a kid, you're at a game, you're watching him play. What are the things that are, are absolute no-nos for, you know, for teenagers? Bad body language, um, lack of competitiveness, uh, pointing the finger at others. Um, uh, you know, just not giving good effort. I, I, I can go on and on with that list. There's, there's certain things like there's, there was a, you know, there's a saying that, that I've heard a lot. It's easier, it's easier to cross names off a list than Adam. <laughs> uh, so, and especially when you're talking about the Arizonas of the world, or, or like I said earlier, LSU, Texas, uh, Florida, places like that, the list is so long mm-hmm. that it's, it's just way easier to say, okay, we're not interested in that guy. Um, versus I'm going to add more and more and more. It, it just doesn't work that way. So control the things you can, and that, that's really your effort and, and who you are as a person. I picked certain players for for either Arizona or the national team um, based off of how I saw them. Well, I'll just say it. Will Benson was one of those guys. Will Benson yeah. was not a guy that was, you know, a lot of people didn't think he would be able to hit at, at, at that level or – or they thought he wasn't uh, refined enough or polished enough baseball player. And I remember going out to see him play. And number one, I mean, he's a freak. Like when you see him, he's, he's just a large human being. Um, but his effort and energy is really what got him that invite. I, I, on purpose, I don't sit behind home plate when I go out to recruit. I go down the lines. I'm not a gear guy. I'm, I'm usually dressed in a, like a t-shirt and a bucket hat. Mm-hmm. And, and I do that on purpose so I can stand by the dugout or I can stand by the bullpens and I can hear these, hear the players talking to each other and, and, and see how they're engaging. And those things are important. They're really yeah. important. Cause I think, I think if, if you have a good plan in place from a coaching standpoint in within your program or organization, you're going to be able to develop those skills. It's very difficult to develop the human being in my opinion. Yeah. So, those are those are the things that that I'm I'm always paying attention to when I go out. So on the topic of Will Benson, I I had the the Indian scouts ask me about him prior to the mm-hmm. draft, and mm-hmm. the thing that I I told them I told them two things. One, literally every rep is done in the warm up, right? You you watch warm ups and mm-hmm. you know they you know you ask them to do five aside, they give you three aside, then they start chatting with their guy next to him, and then they jog mm-hmm. the line. Will would always be the last one done because he did every single rep. He did it meticulously. He did it perfectly. He intentionally yep. went down to like the end of the line to make sure that there was no distractions. So that was the first thing. The second thing, handwritten thank you note. Uh, probably oh. th- three weeks yep. after we got back from um, from Japan, we won the yep. gold medal. Just like you can't teach that. You know, that's that's you know maybe you can when a kid's you know six, seven, eight years old. It's good parenting. So shout out to the Bensons. But um, yeah, you know, I those things stand out in my mind. You, you know, you don't you don't you don't forget them. When you're when you're evaluating really talented players, I, I joke all the time. Like my grandma can tell me that Michael Kopech can throw hard and that he's mm-hmm. going to be successful. You know, with just his talent, the difference maker. And, and this is one of the things that I I always and I learned this early on from Coach Wazikowski and Coach Lopez. Um, get there early. See who exactly what you just said. See who's skipping reps and and warm ups. See who's looking in the stands when they're playing catch instead of focusing on what they need to focus on. And I would, and with pitchers, I'd get there early and I'd watch their pregame warm up and I'd watch their their bullpen before the game, um, and I watch what they do in between innings, especially when they have an inning that didn't go their way or there were errors made behind them. I watch those things on, and, and and that's the stuff that I'm really evaluating the, the talent and the ability um, for the fit for your program or organization. I think most people can figure that out fairly quick. Does it fit? It's all those other areas that, that are going to make up, they're going to make the difference. Taylor Trammell is another example. Um, He's another guy I invited that really, was not a polished baseball player, but an A plus human being. Mm-hmm. Those things go a long way. Now, I'm, I'm curious. I've heard stories from various college sports about how they might have to like unrecruit players. I think that was like a Nick Saban quote. You know, when they yeah. actually arrive on campus, because you go through this incredible courtship process, both to you know pick a school. Um, you know, in, in some sports, guys are tweeting their offers as they go. Mm-hmm. You know, they go through the draft process where every advisor in the world tells them they're going to go three to five out rounds higher than they actually do if they're going to go at all. You know, so mm-hmm. they're just showered with praise during this process and all the, the draft hype. You know, 
do you have to unrecruit people when they get there? Like, what's the avenue through which you, you bring guys back down to earth and, you know, you make them realize, hey, you're, you're part of something much bigger than, than just you now? Yeah. So I, I learned, I got burned early on my first year recruiting at Arizona by doing exactly what you just said. And, and so I learned early on, I'm going to be brutally honest with these guys when I'm recruiting them. This is what you're signing up for. Um, this is the expectation. Uh, this is the, the standard here. This is how coach Lopez is going to react to you or even at EKU. I, I still do it the same. I'm very direct upfront and honest of what it's going to be. And I do that on purpose. So I don't have to unrecruit them when they get here or, um, they decide to go somewhere else. It's just a process of elimination. And that, and, and I never take that personally. Like if it's a better fit for you somewhere else, then I'm glad I was upfront and honest of, about what it, what it's going to be. So I really have, have not dealt with that. Um, just because I I've been very direct and, and upfront early on of what it's, what it's going to be. I think there's, there's a lesson there for all of the athletes is if someone is promising you know, rainbows and butterflies, and you're going to be the Friday night starter as a freshman and all this stuff, you probably need to look a little bit deeper about what actually is, is really going to happen when you go to college sports. Yeah. And, and I think that's unfair to the, the group of guys that you have within your program who have put in the work and, and you're promising to, you know, young players that aren't even in your program that haven't put in the work, that haven't been in the weight room, that haven't really bought into what it is that they're going to be your Friday guy or hitting the four hole or the three hole. I just think that's, that's crazy. It's got to be earned. Um, so maybe changing gears a little bit, you've seen pitching change a ton since your, your first mm-hmm. coaching opportunity and, you know, 13 years ago, you know, what for you are the, the non-negotiables of being a successful pitcher? Um, you know, what hasn't changed since 2007? Yeah. Um, you know, number one, everybody's always going to say this, but the ability to throw strikes, uh, and then, and then one of the, the X factor for me has always been whether it was at U of A or in junior college or, or, or team USA or pro ball was the feel for secondary pitches. Um, I can go out and especially now with the way it is, you can go out and see plenty of guys lighten up the radar gun, but can they spin it? for a strike or can they throw a changeup in a, in a hitter's count? Um, those things show advanced feel for me for a young guy. Um, and, and I just feel like when, when players show up in college or on the professional side, they're going to get in the weight room. They're going to have a disciplined throwing program. They're going to mature. So the velo is going to, it's going to continue to increase or it's going to maintain. It's the secondary pitches that are, that are, are the real X factors. And those are, those are, difficult to teach guys if they've never really had feel for it um athleticism i've always been a big multi multi-sport guy um you know whenever i've engaged with players that 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 are not just specializing at 14 or 15 or 16 years old they're they're doing playing multiple sports that as that athleticism has always um sped up the development process on the mounds mm-hmm. and then just competitive nature i'm always looking for guys that have that that competitive nature, you know, like Braxton Garrett always comes to mind for me with that, that team that you and I were a part of. Um, they're, they're, they, they're eager. Like they want the big game and, and those guys, they're all, for the most part, they're always going to be successful. No doubt about it. And I, I get to see it. It's, you know, I I saw Braxton obviously when he was 17, he works out at the facility. I see Braxton six days a week and it's, Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't go away. You know what I mean? If you no. have the ability to compete, you compete in every aspect of your life. You do it in the weight room. There, there's, It's just the unbelievable ability to be like a 24-hour athlete. And it mm-hmm. also makes you a sponge for finding ways to get better. That's the stuff that I've, I've noticed with those guys, whether it's you know talking with Benson about nutrition back on Team USA or what Braxton's doing from pitching analytics standpoint. It, you know, if, if you're a competitive guy, you're, you have to be open-minded because it's a way to, mm-hmm. to basically expand your horizons. Um, so here's yep. my, so what what do you see now that's evolved from 07 that, that frustrates you about the game, you know, or that you think maybe has gone down a bad path that we, we need to right the ship a little bit? Maybe the pendulum's swung too far in the wrong direction. Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't want to come across as I'm beating anything up, but uh, you're asking the question. So just what showcase baseball, I think, yeah. has been um, – uh, like early on uh, as a coach, I, I, I was, I was at the, at the beginning of showcase baseball when I, when I was recruiting at Arizona and it was really starting to take off and it's great. It's a one-stop shop. You can see a bunch of things that you need to see. 
Um, but now looking back on it, you know, when these guys show up in, in, in my world or, or other big time schools or, or pro ball, you're almost having to teach them the finer points of the game to help win. Like it's been very clear for me from day one, since I started coaching, everything that we do on the field needs to be under the umbrella of winning. Mm-hmm. Um, but like this is a results. We're in a business that's driven by results. I don't care what anybody says, just to be very clear about it is it's winning. And, um, I think we, I think some guys have, have lost touch with that. I, I, I would go to events where I would see a guy start a game and, and he'd throw his first three innings and he was done and he'd come in the, the dugout and ask what his pitch count was and he'd put his shoes on and he'd, he'd leave. He doesn't even know if the team won that day. <laughs> and, and that's, that's not setting you up for success in the places that you want to go. There's a disconnect with that. Um, and then just things that I've seen and, and also heard more and more. And this is not, once again, I think it's just the excitement with technology now. And, and, and I understand it. And, and I think it's, I think it's great. I think it's making everybody better. I think it's making you more precise with what you're doing in development, but I just, I've never seen a game where somebody's going to be pitching and, and after every pitch, they're going to look at an iPad. And I think that that's something that has gone a totally different direction where, where I don't allow it with my guys where, I mean, we're not going to talk about your spin rate or, or any of the metrics from Rapsodo during your bullpen. That that's going to be after that's going to be separate. You need to get in your bullpen. You need to execute pitches and, and be competitive. Um, those are, those are probably the two things that come to mind for me right now. And like I said, I'm not beating that stuff up. I think it's, it's been great for the game on both sides, showcases and, um, technology but i just think uh you you can't go in extremes and right now i feel like we're at least the last couple years i feel like we've gone in extremes in the industry but we're starting i I think i'm starting to see it shift or balance a little bit would you agree with that i I would and i think you know we kind of talked offline about just the you know the concept of like the soft skills of coaching um and and we actually had uh, tom kohler was a a recent guest and tom's recently retired and um you know is, is you know, it's certainly, certainly spoken very candidly about like, Hey, just because, you know, you've got a high spin rate four seam or you got a banger curveball, like that might be a great pitch, but if you're not confident throwing that pitch in a certain scenario, right, there's what the, the analytics tell you. And then there's also what you are confident in your ability to execute. So I, I think those are things that have to be, you know, constantly reconciled and that's where communication relationships, all that stuff really comes about. Mm-hmm. Uh, like understand what you're doing when you're giving the ball your your job is to get hitters out and that's to help your team win um all the other stuff is is going to enhance your ability to do that on a more consistent basis but but for me they're 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 two separate worlds um you know like i i had the the uh opportunity you set it up for me to sit in on some of caps meetings like with c-shack while i was down there and and that's that was in the off season and they're 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 um, dissecting, you know, areas that need need improvement, um, areas that, you know, like things that had changed in his delivery in those meetings, and and that stuff's great. But but how old is Steve? Uh, Steve is thirty four now. Right. How long yeah. has he been pitching in the big leagues? Nine and change. So, yeah. So he yeah. understands his body. He understands his adjustments. He understands the feel of his pitches and. Like if we're doing that with 14, 15, 16 year olds, I just think that that's where we're getting, we're, we're, we're losing the foundation of what they need to do to be successful. And that's, you know, throw strikes. And like we talked about earlier, throw, throw at least one secondary pitch for a strike and understand how to control the run game. I mean, these are all different, different aspects and, and you know, like that stuff needs to be, be there. I'm not saying don't do, don't let these guys use rap soda or do, um, uh, a drive line or any of that stuff. I'm not saying that, but, but there needs to be a balance with it. Interesting. So and it kind of speaks to my, maybe to my next question is I remember you, you talking in detail about the success you'd had with freshmen, right? Guys that came in, you know, they were very green around the gills and you, you had a very meticulously mapped out program from, you know, July when they came on campus earlier, right up through probably the end of the summer after their freshman year um, to, to optimize their developmental process while at Arizona. What, what were the, maybe the challenges that you saw in that 17 to 18 year old incoming freshman that you, you know, the things that you need to address. And then what were some of your action items with those guys over that, you know, eight, 18 months that followed? Um, 
it was it's always common about three fourths of the way through the season they start to break down physically and mentally mm-hmm. um which which I think is just normal and I think the way at least what I've done even even more recent is just um, telling them that those things are going to happen, like being very open and honest about what it is and then how we can combat that. And one of the things we we did when I was at U of A and we were getting ready to implement it here at EKU is, you know, instead of sending guys out to play more in the summer, they were staying back with the strength and conditioning coach and getting in that weight room and getting stronger. It's a lot of guys, especially if you're getting talented baseball players, when they get into college or professional baseball, it's not so much the baseball that, that beats them down. It's, it's, they're not physically there yet. And they're being manhandled by guys that are two or three years older than them that have been dedicated to the weight room and that have 20 more pounds on them. Um, and then also just the mental side of it, they're not used to, uh, pitching in front of, you know, whatever it is, 6,000 people at LSU that are yelling at you and, and yeah. saying crazy things to you when you're warming up in the bullpen. And, and, and then you add in the academic side of it and, and the social aspects of, of just life and, and all those things start to kind of pile up on them. So for me, the more that I can talk about what it is and, and tell them what it is and, and, and have open communication and dialogue with them, I, I think it helps them and just tell them every day, like, look, we're just trying to get 1% better, just a little bit better. We're not trying to go from, from being a a, a, fir- a freshman in the fall to an all-American in in three weeks, it doesn't work that way. So, you know, I always I would I would use like um, like uh, North Carolina, well Kentucky basketball. I'm here in Lexington right now. Like call it Calipari, he like his teams always start slow, but man, they finish strong, and that and that's the key. And and I think when you speak to young players about that, like, look, it's not it's not how you pitch in this inner squad today. It's how you look and how you impact the team in, in May and June. Mm-hmm. And I think you, you take a little bit of pressure off them um, by just having those conversations. Picking the long-term, long-term game. And mm-hmm. so you're one of the few guys I know who can maybe speak to talent identification slash scouting, um, but also player development. You know, historically speaking, you know, in the college realm, you can't do that, right? It's a smaller staff. So like the people who recruit are the people who coach. Um, mm-hmm. in pro ball, it's different, right? And you had, you had a couple of years in pro ball to see that where, you know, you see scouting departments, you obviously see player development departments that, you know, they communicate, but they're, they're very different, you know, departments. Um, yeah. so I'm curious, do you think we can fundamentally separate the two? Is it, is it ever going to be like a clear delineation or do you think that there has to be a, a lot of go between to make it, you know, a, a scenario where the, the scouts find players that can be developed? Yeah, I think the organizations that are doing it really well, and, and you're a part of them, one right now, uh, there's a little bit of crossover in that communication. Um, and I think that that's what was trying to be accomplished or still is being accomplished with the Padres. When I was there, I was I was one of one of a handful of people that had a hybrid role. And, and A.J. Preller, I think, had a vision of, of having those crossovers so that the communication, um, those lines aren't aren't blurred. Um, so there's a clear understanding when you get a young, either high school guy or even a college guy that rolls into professional baseball and he doesn't look very good early on because he's struggling because of the adjustment. Um, I was able to, to tell some of those coaches, look, this is what I saw. This is what this guy is. And this is what he's going to be. If anything, professional baseball, um, gave me more patience because I, I saw a lot of guys early on that struggled and then after a year of all those those reps that you get in professional baseball, they turned into something really good. So I I just and I'm speaking, you know, without being in some certain organizations that I think have a lot of success. I think the Indians do it really well too. Yeah. I think they cross over very well in those areas with with a handful of people. So that information and things are are, are a lot clearer and it's understood better. Absolutely. Um, and so Team USA was one of the really big highlights in my coaching career for, for a lot of reasons. Like, first off, we had you, you were wildly progressive. So you had Tanner Swanson, Matt Blake, and me all on a staff. I'm pretty sure you had Tanner and Matt sleeping on a cot in your room for, for part of it um, at, at national team trials coaching, you know, before the, the final selection was taken. You had you had Matt Hobbs, who was doing great things at Wake Forest mm-hmm. at the time, now on to, to Arkansas. Butch Thompson was on there. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was a collection of really, really good coaches. Um, and, and I learned a ton from all of them. So I'm, I'm curious, 
you know, retroactively though, like I'm, I'm sure you look back on those guys. I mean, we, we have a couple of them that still train with us to this day. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you've got three guys, Moniac and um, Braxton and, and Ian Anderson all made their, their major league debuts this year. So I'm curious, as you look back on those 15 to 17 year olds, you know, they've grown up, they've become stud prospects, you know, a couple of big leaguers. When you look back on those talented groups, what separated the ones that, that thrived after that experience from, mm-hmm. from the ones that didn't. And then, you know, also maybe part two is like, I remember when, you know, actually, you know, just answer that question. I'll ask my part two afterwards. <laughs> uh, what separated the ones from that made it yeah. from the ones that didn't? Uh, you know, I, I think I was pretty lucky. Both of those national teams, uh, a large majority of those players are, are, are successful or, or they're knocking on the door of the big leagues or yeah. they're in the big leagues right now. So there weren't many that I, I, I think struggled or, or have failed. Um, but, but the, the things that I noticed with a lot of those guys is it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. They all love the game. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember, and this was the year before you were, were with the group, but Nick Madrigal, the reason why he made the, the national team was at the end of every tournament of stars game, his uniform was caked with dirt. I'm like, man, are you out there just rolling in the dirt or what? Like this guy, he just loved it. And, um, the competitive nature that another huge separator, but, but the other key thing, and this is why those national teams are so special is uh, the guys that have been successful or have gotten to the big leagues faster. All of them, they, they were real good at um, phasing out the outside noise. You know, when we go and you were a part of it, you lived it. Um, you, you know, you're, you got different, you got different time schedules. You got food that's being provided by the host country that may not be what you like. Um, you know, the, the schedule is it's, it's it's nonstop. You have no days off Yep. and you're playing all different types of, you know, like Japan plays a different style. Cuba plays a different style. Um, Chinese Taipei and, and you're not able to scout those teams. You don't really know what you're going into with competition. So for me, and I think that's why so many major league teams or GMs evaluate uh, the national teams is because it's gi- just giving you a clear picture of how these guys are going to handle adversity. And for the most part, most of those guys handled it really well. And that's why I'm not surprised that they're, they're succeeding the way they are. That's interesting. So I, I remember distinctly, so right in the you know the last week, you know uh, we were at Cal State Fullerton for it. We had 20, twenty-eight guys are doing the final cut from from twenty-eight to twenty, and mm-hmm. I, I distinctly remember Coach Shakini at the front of the room. Mm-hmm. And he talked about, hey, my, my son was cut, you know, from here. And mm-hmm. in, in that moment, I thought of of Tyler Beatty. Tyler Beatty was was cut his his you know going into his senior high school. It was an unbelievable motivator for him, and he, he became mm-hmm. you know first round pick the following year. Um, but Chikini said in that moment, he's like, "Don't forget, Mike Trout got cut from Team USA." <laughs> yeah, and it, it it always was a line that stuck with me. And you know, I look back and like, how many guys do you see that were ones that just you did you didn't you didn't see it for whatever reason, or that they surged afterwards because you went through a ton of guys. I mean, to get to yep. this final 20 man roster, you've got to see 2000, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nathan Durst with the white Sox, he's a national cross checker. He, he, him and I, you know, we would start with those rosters in February and, and it, it, it's a, it's a, you're, you're selecting 108 guys and you're cutting it down to 40 and then down to 20. And I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to give you a prime example because I kick myself almost every day and I, I hope he's listening or someone tells him because I apologize. Royce Lewis, <laughs> I, made, I made a mistake. And his high school, his high school coach, uh, Brett McKay, called me multiple times. And, and I went out and saw Royce. I, went, I think I went and saw him four times. And I just didn't. It's, it's poor on my part. And I remember, and you'll probably remember this, we, we played the Brewer Scout team at Fullerton. And Royce Lewis led the game off with a triple. And the and, and I never said it, anything to anybody, but after that game, I'm just like, man, I made a huge mistake. And there's there's just so many good players, and and you're gonna make mistakes, and that's the beauty of USA baseball and the national team is you know you're you're gonna have some guys that that don't make it, and and I agree with you. Think about this: that year you were there, and I, and I would like to fact check this, but we had three number one overall picks in the tournament of stars. So Hunter Green. Mickey Moniak, Adley Rushman. Okay. Yeah. Adley Rushman didn't make the national team. That's another example. Yeah. 
um, he just didn't perform, you know, he just didn't perform well that week. And it's such a small sample size and it's, it's such a challenge for those guys. And there's so much pressure to it that it, it stinks when, you know, they have a tough week. Um, but that's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a crazy deal. One, one thing that I didn't add in there that I do want to add in, um, the other commonality with the guys that I've seen be successful is, is they did a really good job of, of pouring into themselves off the field. And an example I'll give is Forrest Whitley, you know, you know, connecting with you and, and when we were done in Japan and, and him going all in with you and totally changing his body, like there, I'm not surprised he's, he's, you know, he hasn't made it to the big leagues yet for various reasons, but he's going to. And once he gets there, I think he's going to be very successful. And there were a lot of those guys. And, um, you know, I even look at just what Ian Anderson, I mean, Ian Anderson was mm-hmm. spectacular in his major league debut. And then yeah. all year into the postseason. I, I mean, I remember Ian, you know, in a bases loaded situation against Mexico on like a, I mean, I felt <laughs> like a backfield in Japan. Yeah. Like, yeah. You, you just don't get that pressure in upstate New York, if you're Ian Anderson, you know what I mean? No. You can be that kid throwing 93 to 95 with a great curveball, and you're never going to have to get out of your comfort zone. So they, I think that's why Team USA, I know there are guys that skip out on it and you know mm-hmm. and things like that. Like to me, yet, yeah, it makes your season run longer, but it's the, the absolute best chance to like actually show what you're capable of doing on yeah. like 15,000 people against Japan in Japan with Japanese umpires. Like you, you can't find a better way to test your metal. No, in in the year before the group that I had, we were we you know we're playing in Mexico against Cuba and and same deal. I mean, we, you know, it's it seems to be and and I'm it's, I'm probably going conspiracy theory here, but I don't think we ever had an American umpire on any of those crews <laughs> in the gold medal games or any of the critical games, and that's okay. And you know, that's one of the things that that try to do is prepare those guys mentally before we left the states for what it's going to be and. And as long as we did a good job with that, they were they were going to be okay. Um, but but yeah, that that experience, you know, beyond just showcasing your ability and in, in tough moments, but also representing your country and and all that. It's just I, to me, it's it's such a great experience. I can even remember, you know, at Fullerton because uh, you know Alan Jager was out there helping out. Mm-hmm. You had you, had, um, you know Matt Blake, and I remember you talking mm-hmm. with those guys and saying, "Listen, remember, we're managing pitchers. We're not coaching pitchers." In, in right. other words, it's you're not overhauling deliveries a week before you go to Japan. Like right now, it's all about you know you're, you're boosting confidence. You're teaching guys right. to use pitches in, in in different kind of dynamics. But you know, it speaks to those guys developed. Even though nothing was changed, they developed because of you know the diversity they 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 faced and how they were maybe mentally and and physically prepared for that adversity. Yeah, I had that both years where, and I get it where coaches were so eager to work with those guys. And, and it's such a small you know, window of time we have with them, you know, coming in and tinkering and doing those things just wasn't, it's just not going to work. And I, I remember my first year we were in Houston training to go to, to Mexico and it's, it's, you know, 95 degrees and humid. And, and I'm telling the coaching staff, like, li- listen, these guys played a high school season. They've played most of the summer and we need to have short, crisp, quick practices and get them off their feet. And the first day we go out, it, it was almost a four-hour practice. And I'm just like, man. And I get it, though. The eagerness to work with those guys and be out there, it's it's such a fun experience. And then, like you, you referenced earlier, all those coaches. And selfishly for me, I, I basically hired a bunch of my my friends, my buddies, to, to do it. And, and I could have been out there all day, too. But I, I knew the – you know, we're, we're looking at the end game, the end result. Like, be fresh and be really good for the gold medal game, not – not teeter out you know in the first first three or four games because we were blowing it out in practice and and overhauling things it just doesn't work that way and I know some guys probably got frustrated with me and and because of that but it's just understanding you know what we were what we were trying to accomplish and what what that that timetable looked like uh, and you know you had the most underwhelming bullpen catcher in history. You survived in, <laughs> in spite of him. I don't do. Do we need to tell the story? Well, go go ahead because you almost got me. I think you almost got me ended. For uh, I don't know. Celebrating. No. So uh, I mean, the long story short is you have a twenty man roster for international competition, so it doesn't mm-hmm. exactly allow for three catchers. And um, I think uh, we had one catcher that got you know Montezuma's revenge or something like that was on <laughs> IVs and was not available for the gold medal. Yeah game so um i was always catching bullpen so i've i've caught forrest whitley i've caught ian anderson i've caught braxton garrett i've i've caught all those guys but i distinctly remember 
in the gold medal game. We're at Koshin Stadium in Japan. Mm -hmm. And so I'm down on the right field line. I don't know if you remember. Um, so basically, we wanted to throw on field because it was kind of like a rainy night. The guys didn't yeah. want to just warm up. They wanted to get the feel for the wet baseball. So it's the ninth inning. We're up 2-1, and Reggie Lawson's pitching. I'm down in mm -hmm. right field catching. <laughs> and the way the, the fields are set up, you're on the field, right? There's, there's mm -hmm. the, the bullpen is out there. So my back is to the right field corner. Um, and I'm just like, I don't want to be a national disaster. Like, if, if I miss one of these balls from Berger, it's going to roll into the field. It's going to stop the game in the middle of this. Benson's, like, right there. He's probably, you know, busting my chops on it. But mm -hmm. um, I distinctly remember, uh, I think Reggie got to two strikes. There was nobody on base or something like that. And Bergner turned around. He looked at me, he goes, Crest, get ready to celebrate. And he turns around and starts to take like two steps towards the dugout. And you got to the top of the dugout step and you said, you yelled, like, get back there. I'm superstitious. Yeah. I hate that stuff. Like, yeah. I, it always stands out in my mind. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I've lived it. I've lived it. I, and, I, and I've lived it either with our team or I've seen some of our opponents do the same thing where they think the game's wrapped up and they start packing up their bullpen and, and guys move down. Um, you know, they start taking their cleats off and they're walking mm -hmm. down to the dugout. And then all of a sudden you see that offense, you know, they start to start to put something together and come back. Mm -hmm. So I, to this day, I still do the same thing. And, and, yeah. and, you know, like for the first time when I, when I get on guys for doing it, they kind of look at me weird and then I explain it to them and, and they get it, they understand. And mm -hmm. I'm telling you right now, you can go out and watch games and see a team do that. And for whatever reason, it just it's the game coming back and punishing you for thinking that Karma. that it showed up and it's over. Now, one thing I want to add to to your uh, bullpen catching job that, you know, mysteriously that that catcher's gear has disappeared. <laughs> and I don't know if it ended up in the Cressy Hall of Fame or if it's it might, uh, it might be in Cooperstown. <laughs> Cooperstown or like. And luckily, I got so lucky because the guy that oversaw the umpires in Japan was Gus Rodriguez, who was a Pac-12 umpire. And I know his son, he's, a, he's the head coach at Bellarmine High School up in, in NorCal. And he came over to me one day and said, hey, Sean, you know, who's, who's, who's your bullpen catcher out there? And, you know, he's, he's, not, he's not officially on the roster, is he? And I said, no, no. And he's like, yeah, you got to keep him off the field. I said, okay. We'll rain him. They, they stuck, it, stuck me in the back <laughs> under the stadium. You know what? You earned it. I had a uh, I had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich earlier today, and every time <laughs> I have PB and J, I think of whatever of it takes. Making like forty PB and Js in the morning, so you you earned it. Absolute humility. It's what you got to take. And then I I actually still have a Japanese newspaper. We were leaving uh -huh. the next day, and it was in the airport. And we were front page for for beating them. And yep. on the front page of this Japanese newspaper is an old dude with a receding hairline <laughs> ra racing to the dog pile with a bunch of 17-year-olds. Yep. So it's a, it's a good story for the ages. But um, that's what it's about. Yeah. That's what it's about, seriously. <laughs> um, all right, so changing subjects. Uh, let's talk about the change-up. Because you, you, you hinted at it as you know something that made you a good coach because you had to rely on it. Mm -hmm. Maybe didn't have the same arm speed. Uh, maybe it's that you're left-handed, but I feel like the conversations we've had over the years about developing elite change-ups – uh, are some of the ones that maybe stand out the most. So what, what are some of the big rocks for you when you, when you teach it, you know, you get that, that 17 year old kid who's green around the kills that just gets to campus. What are you starting with? Yeah. So for me, and this is, um, this is for the entire pitching staff. I, they, it's in court, the changeup is incorporated into their daily throwing program. So um, every day I, I ask those guys to throw, um, eight to 10 changeups at anywhere from 90 to 120 feet. And, and I'm not asking for, um, accuracy. I'm asking for arm speed. And then after they get eight to 10 of those, then they come into about anywhere from, I don't know, 50 to 60 feet. Well, actually probably 60, 70 feet. And I ask them to, um, long hop their partner with about five of them. And that's just getting extension out front and, and finishing that change up off with their, their middle finger and, um, just getting feel for it. And then in their bullpens for the most part, until guys get a little bit older and a little more experience in the program, I script every bullpen. And uh, so there's going to be a certain number of changeups in their bullpens. And usually those are in hitter counts. And, and then, and then early in the fall in inner squads, um, the first couple of inner squads are all fastballs and then we'll graduate to fastball changeup. And then they will eventually get to where they can mix in their, their breaking balls. But I, 
I just think the changeups an equalizer. Um, if anything, it's 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 keeping the fastball fresh, um, but it's it's also an equalizer in those two o two one three one counts. Um, I, and really, a lot of that I stole from John Savage at, at UCLA. He he really does a good job of teaching his guys long hold, slide step, change ups, and it would it would tear our guys up a lot. And and so I, I'll give Coach Savage a lot of credit for that. I I, I kind of you know I, I bought into the change up a lot more after that. And then um, Dewey Robinson Robertson with the uh, Tampa Bay Rays, he was another one that had a, a lot of influence on on me. Um, adding in more changeups. He was the pitching coordinator for the Rays, or or he still is. Um, but he he told me that early on with a lot of their prospects, it's fifty percent fastball and, and then changeup. I love that. It's just use it more. You know what I mean? It, it make make it a priority if it is a priority. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 understand why. And like I said, and and the other thing too is, um, and it, it goes back to the way I pitched, and then also Coach Lopez was big on breaking balls, but. I've always said to our guys, you know, spin the win. Like we're gonna, we're gonna spin it, and we're gonna have, um, we're gonna have the ability to throw an OO breaking ball or a breaking ball in any count for a strike, and then also have the ability to throw a two strike breaking ball and understand the difference between the two. So, for me, secondary pitches, like like I said earlier, like th- those are the equalizers. Guys are gonna throw hard, but I've seen it. You know, one of the guys, and he's probably gonna hate that I'm gonna tell this, but early on in his career, he, well. UCLA for three years I had to watch Garrett Cole on Friday night and then Trevor Bauer on Saturday and you know we we would we would be able to compete with Garrett Cole and he's sitting 97 99 and that was just because early on in his career he didn't have really good secondary pitches and but then on Saturday Bauer would abuse our guys and that's because he could throw a curveball and a change up and then a fastball up or a fastball under the hands and same with Mike Leak. Mike Leak was one of the the better like college pitchers I've seen at Arizona State and and that's because, I mean, you could you, your timing was off the entire time in those ABs. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a, that's an important lesson now. Where where I mean, Garrett was was different back then. Not everybody <laughs> had ninety seven and ninety nine. Like right. you're going to run into ninety five plus on every Division one college roster yep. now. It's just it's a thing. So, all right, uh, who in it? I, I just yeah. the, the better teams that you see, I, and and I'm just throwing, I'm going out on a limb with this. Yep the better teams that you see get to Omaha, the ones that can really pitch a lot of them can, they, they know how to pitch. It's not just, we're going to beat you with VLO. And you're yeah. even seeing that in the big leagues. I think the percentages have gone up in the last yeah. number of years of, of secondary pitches being thrown just because hitters for the last decade, what do you think they've been doing? They've been hitting off of VLO machines yeah. and they're seeking fastballs. So it, yeah, we, we got to start coaching, recruiting it differently. Now I'm curious with like the change up, how long will you stick with a particular grip? You know, cause there are guys that, that struggle their yeah. entire career to find something that's comfortable. Like, do you run it for eight weeks? And if it's not feeling right, then you change it. What's your, what's your kind of like mindset on that? Um, well, well, one thing that I do, I'm, I'm big on tinkering with grips. I, mm-hmm. I actually, I put like out for the throwing programs, I'll put a box out where I, I'll, I'll get like nine baseballs where I'll, I'll draw different grips of big leaguers. So like I taught a lefty a couple of years ago, a screwball. Um, I've taught a couple guys split fingers and I, I allow them to tinker with those different grips. So mm-hmm. the, the, the one thing with the change up is it, if guys, especially guys with big hands, they have, they have a tough time with the, the, the standard circle change grip is mm-hmm. I, I've taught a lot of them split changes. Yep. Um, I went out and spent some time with, with Butch Thompson mm-hmm. a couple years ago and Casey Mize was there and he had that split change grip and I took a picture of it when I was there and I've taught you know, Aaron Oceanbine's a guy in the Dodgers organization that that I still think was the best closer in college baseball two two years ago at EKU. His numbers were stupid. I taught him a split change because he couldn't throw a change up. And that that pitch, he's still throwing it now in, in the Dodgers organization. So early on, you know, I, I don't like to let them, especially if they're not comfortable with it, because I, I do think it's a mindset thing. Mm-hmm. Um it's it's the curse of the good arm in high school that you can blow fastballs by everybody so they're not really working on the changeup they're not throwing it and they also think it's a a weak pitch so uh, early on I'm I, I'm really trying to get their mentality to to understand that that's a power pitch just like your breaking ball that's a power pitch and we're going to throw it aggressively and once they do that and they start changing their mindset um, and they get more aggressive with it 
they gain more confidence and the grip really doesn't, doesn't, um, factor in as much anymore. I, I, I really believe a lot of it is coming in. They think a changeup's just a, a soft pitch and, and they're not really bought into throwing it aggressively. That's a very good point. All right. So we, we always wrap up with a lightning round. Um, yeah. and so it's, it's quick hitter questions and you can answer how long, long you want, but I, I know you're a voracious reader. You, you, we will text <laughs> podcast recommendations back and forth. Yeah. What's yeah. one book that every player should read? Okay. Well, um, I, I, I do love to read. So if it's okay, if, if I can give two, you can get as uh, many as you want. Okay, sweet. So uh, there's, there's two books for the last number of years with pitching staffs that I've had that I, I, I will send them an audio book, usually in August, and, and then we'll cover it in the fall. And, and the first one is Chop Wood, Carry Water by uh, uh, Joshua Metcalf. And that's just about the process. It's about a samurai, uh, an American that goes over and, and gets in, 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 in with samurai um, warriors and, and learns that culture and, and just learns about the process. Um, and then the most recent one that I've given to the pitching staff is, uh, it, it takes what it takes by Trevor Moad yeah. because, you know, neutral thinking has been a, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by it, you know, getting away from positive thinking, negative thinking, just staying in the moment and regardless of the result, moving on to the next thing. And, and, and I know the guys really love that. So those, those are two great books that I think every player should invest in. That's a good one. What about coaches? Yeah, coaches. Um, I I have two for this one also. Um, the Gold Standard, Coach K, mm -hmm. uh, outstanding book. It talks about the process with the Olympic team, and 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 I got a lot from that. And then the second one is it's it's called Getting to Us: How Great Coaches Make Great Teams um, by Seth Downing, and it has it's every chapter is a different coach. So it has Harbaugh, it has Dabo Sweeney, Tom Izzo, Urban Meyer, Coach K. Brad Stevens, uh, the women's basketball coach at UConn, and, and a bunch of others, and, and I've I've listened to it three times. It, it's it's great. I pick up something from it every time. Very good stuff. All right, so if you can go back in time and you can give Sean Cole some advice twenty years ago, so basically it's actually maybe even we say uh, you know not necessarily Sean Cole player, Sean Cole early coach. What would mm -hmm. that advice be? So circa two thousand seven. Yeah, uh, you referenced it earlier, and and I think it's one of my one of one of my good qualities, but also has been a bad one. Is is slow down and appreciate the moment. Um, you know, I think I think back to a lot of the great things that I've been able to be a part of, and I was always going 100 miles an hour and and thinking about the next thing and thinking about recruiting or thinking about this and and not really staying in in the moment and, and enjoying it. All right, what about your favorite coaching memory? Kind of the mm. piggyback question. Yeah, once again, I mean, I've I've been I've been really blessed with a lot of a lot of good ones. You know, national championship. I, I every day the memories from that or or people that I connect with or stories or just thinking about being on the field and seeing everybody smiling. Um, the junior college championship, same deal because that coaching staff and and st I still talk to pretty much all those guys. We were really good friends. Um, and a bunch of young guys uh, just getting into coaching and, and to have that success early on. And then both of those uh, national teams, just like I said, the, the smiles on everybody's faces and the stories. And I, every time I see you or we've connected in the past, it's always at least one of those stories from the national team. And same with anybody else that was a part of it. So, um, yeah, I, I, I have a lot of them. That's good stuff. All right, last one. We have a lot of kids and parents who listen to this podcast together, whether it's on the mm -hmm. ride to practice or games. Um, and the feedback has actually always been outstanding, in particular on on college coaches. So, mm -hmm. you know, whether that was you know Butch Thompson coming on or Matt Hobbs or some of the others we've had. So, if you could give one bit of advice to to them, both both parents mm -hmm. and kids, what would it be? Yeah, it's 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 the same one that I, I give a lot, and it's you know really sit down. And, and self-evaluate where you fit best socially, academically, and, and, and where you're going to get the best baseball development and list three to five of those schools and, and make it a point to go to their, go attend their camps. Like th there were so many players in the past that, that I recruited and, and, and I would ask them, you know, who are the other schools recruiting you? And, and they would say Oregon and, and Texas tech. And I would ask them, have you ever been to Eugene? Have you ever been to Lubbock? No. Okay. Well, like, you're going to be living it, you know, you're going to go live there for three or four years. And then also you're going to be with 
if you're a pitcher, you're going to be with me more than anybody. So like, go get, do your best to try to go get to know those coaches, get to know that campus, get to know the, the town or city it's in, um, and, and really figure out academically if it's a fit for you. And then, like I said, socially, like those things are really important. And I just think I see a lot of families spending a boatload of money to travel the country hoping to be seen by the schools they want to go to instead of just going directly to the source. I love that. That's very, very important advice. And honestly, a lot of cost-saving advice too. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. Um, great stuff. Well, hey, I, I appreciate all you taking the time for this call, but I also appreciate your fa- friendship, the opportunities the, uh, that you provided for me, the teaching that you've, uh, you've provided during those opportunities. I, I always enjoy our conversations and this was certainly no exception. So thanks so much for taking the time. Always, always love our time and, and please give the, the family and tank a big hug for me and, and Merry Christmas. We'll do back at you, bud. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.